Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. As we jump into Mark chapter 10, I want us to think about a question I think is kind of hard for us to answer. And the question is this, as we, as we try to do great things and good things and righteous things, things that honor God, and we try to achieve and we maybe even try to desire some, some influence or leadership position in the church, how do we do these good things in a right way? They don't keep us, or that keep us from becoming prideful or, or vain or even insecure, right? So I, let me tell you that my personality type is I love, love to set goals. Love to set goals. You could say I'm almost obsessed with setting goals. I like long-term goals, short-term goals. I have a 27-year goal that I'm working toward right now. And then I set, honestly, 15-minute goals, Right? I've got four kids, so sometimes it's just chaos. And when I'm not changing one or wiping the other one, I'm like, okay, I've got 15 minutes. I can get this project done in 15 minutes. I love to set goals. And my personality type is that of an achiever. Now, that doesn't mean I actually achieve. That just means I try to achieve. Right? And so I really love, like, there's so much joy in my life in setting goals and achieving goals. Like right now, I'm working on my New Year's resolutions. Yeah. <laughs> That was good. From last year. Ouch, bro. Fight me. Jeez. <laughs> like, I got to take care of something real quick, okay? No, I'm just kidding. No, but I, I'm actually setting my goals for, for next year, and I actually get excited about that. We joke, my wife and I, we would joke about, she would say, there's, like a, there's a unique curse word in the Crandall house, and that's the G word, goal, right? Because if I go to my wife, I say, hey, babe, I, you know, I think I got this new goal. Immediately, she would get hives, like, okay, what are we doing now? <laughs> you know, I just, I love it. Now, you could tell that kind of personality type, maybe that's you, it's easy to veer off in the wrong direction and take that in a bad way, right? You, if you have this idea of, of wanting to achieve and set a goal and do those things that, man, you, you can be prone to pride, you can be prone to vanity, you can be prone to insecurity. Because if you don't achieve that goal, you fail in that goal. It hurts your self-esteem at times, right? So how, how can we try to achieve, try to do good things, try to glorify God, even seek leadership in the church? How do we do these things 
without falling into those types of traps. Now, you may be thinking, Paul, this whole language of like achievement and leadership and greatness, those don't sound like very spiritual terms. Those terms feel like they belong on like the shelf of like sinful terms. But I want to push back against that thinking for a second because I think Jesus wants us to actually achieve and he rewards achievement. Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, talks about five different times, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, five different times about how God, the Father, rewards those who do the right thing. Jesus tells his followers to store up treasures that are in heaven. We seem to get this idea that God actually rewards spiritual achievements. When Paul is writing to Timothy, a very young pastor, who's trying to build a church in Ephesus, and he's trying to make it strong, he tells Timothy, hey, you're going to have to look for some leaders. And look what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He talks about those who desire leadership. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. There's a way to want leadership. There's a way to want to achieve. There's a way of wanting to be great or do something good or exercise authority and power. There are those things that we could go after in a godly way. But we know that going after these things can be prone to really bad things. So how do we navigate this idea of wanting to do great things for God in a way that glorifies Him and doesn't lead to pride? that doesn't lead to vanity, that doesn't lead to insecurity. How do we pursue great things for God? Well, Mark chapter 10, Jesus is going to describe to his disciples the way that they can do this, which leads us to our big idea for today. So if you can write down one thing, I want you to write this down. This is like the main idea of Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 10. Big idea is this, the way up is down. The way up is down. Now, let me explain. What does the way up mean? Don't think of climbing the corporate ladder or establishing more wealth. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, the way up means achieving something great or gaining leadership or influence, exercising power and authority. The way up is down, meaning the way down is the idea of being humble, of serving others, of thinking of others, of putting the needs of others before you, using your authority and power to humbly serve those in need. For Jesus, what we'll see is leadership is sacrifice. But the way up is down. Achievement is service. The way up is down. Let me show you this. In Mark chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 35. Jesus is going to be approached by two very ambitious disciples who are going to need to learn this lesson that the way up is down. Now, here's what we're going to see as Jesus talks to these two disciples and later to the other 10 disciples. We're going to see that wanting to go up or to achieve something great, to have a leadership position is not a bad thing. But if we pursue that good thing in a bad way, it can be bad. Let me show you this. Let's look at the question given to Jesus by these two very ambitious followers. Verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He said, or he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on the right and the other on the left. Okay, 
What's up with James and John? Like, why do they want Jesus, teacher, who they call here, to redo the seating chart in the classroom? Right? Like, I don't know if you're dealing with that right now. I know I'm dealing with that right now. I've got a, my two older kids are in elementary school and in middle school or junior high, whatever you call it. And they're talking about seating charts. And my daughter is excited that the seating chart's going to move because there's kind of an annoying kid, you know, who says, I'm sorry if you're that annoying kid who sits near my daughter. You just got put on blast. So sorry about that. Right? But, right, maybe that's what they're asking for. We just want to reorg kind of this seating chart. No, they're asking for more than that. They're saying, Jesus, when you come in your, and they say, glorious throne, we want to be next to you, Jesus. We want to be in the places of prominence. See, because in the ancient world, the most prominent position next to the king would be that of his right-hand side. And then second to that would be his left-hand side. So they came up to Jesus like, hey, man, we want to be number one and number two. When you come, we want to be number one and number two. That's what we want. We want those kind of positions of power. Now, they use this term, glorious throne. And that actually ties back with something that Jesus just said just two chapters before this chapter. Look at this. This is Mark chapter 8. The only time that Mark uses the word glory, here in Mark 10, he used glorious throne. The only other time up to this point is in this passage right here. He uses this term. And Jesus is describing this very dynamic and powerful day. Look at this, Mark chapter 8, it's verse 38. He says this, If anyone is ashamed of me and of my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man, now this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. We're going to get to what that term means, but Jesus is talking about himself there. So the Son of Man will, will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory, there's that term, the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. This sounds like an awesome day. Now you've got to think for James and John. They are Jewish men who are well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus starts talking about this title, Son of Man. He starts talking about this return with glory and with a company of angels. And it, it, it invokes in their mind this idea of power and dominion. Jesus, you're going to be a king. I think this actually ties back to a vision given to the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 speaks of this wonderful vision hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And it uses that term, Son of man. Again, Jesus' favorite title for himself. So Jesus talks about this glorious day of, uh, of the glory of the Father and the company of his holy angels, and he's returning. And I think what he's describing here is what Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 7. Look at this, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says this, again, hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrives, when the people of God were still living in exile under the Babylonian empire. They're not even in the great city of Jerusalem. It says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. Again, this is a title. When Jesus says son of man, it doesn't mean he's the son of a man. He's not just talking about his humanity. He's talking about this figure right here seen in Daniel's vision. And look at who this guy is. 
Daniel sees this vision, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One, this is God in this passage, the Ancient One, and was led into His presence. And He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world, so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom kingdom will never be destroyed. Now imagine if you're James and John. Right? You're living under Roman oppression. Your people have been in exile and then been destroyed, like gone back, had some power, had somewhat of a dynasty, then Rome came in and destroyed all that. So now you're living in your wonderful promised land, but under the Roman oppressor. Now you're with this teacher who starts to use this phrase, son of man, and you're journeying towards the holy city of Jerusalem. You're going to the royal city. Clear, they're, they're probably thinking, hey, this, this Jesus who's cast out demons, who's done all these miracles, we're now journeying towards Jerusalem. Clearly, Jesus is going to restore the royal throne of David. He is Messiah. He is coming. It is go time. Jesus, can we be next to you? When you come in power, when you come with authority, when you're given dominion, an everlasting kingdom, Jesus, can we be next to you? Are they asking for a bad thing? Are they asking in a bad way? I think what they're asking for is a good thing. I think they're asking in the wrong way. And we get this from Jesus' response. Go back to Mark chapter 9. Sorry, Mark chapter 10. Because Jesus' response is going to show us that what these guys want isn't a bad thing. Wanting to be great in the kingdom of God, to have a, a leadership, a position of power and authority, they're not bad. It's just how they want them is wrong. Look at Jesus' response in Mark chapter 10, verse 39. Sorry, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from the bitter cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right hand or my left. God has prepared those places for those He has chosen. Now let's start from the last part there and move up. Look at the last part. Are these positions wrong? No. Will Jesus have somebody at His right hand and at His left? Yes, He will. He just said, yeah, that's going to happen. In fact, God's going to appoint those people to that position. So if those positions are wrong, then God's in sin. Because God is the one who's chosen the people to be in those positions. So it is fair for us to realize that under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are all, yes, created equal. But that doesn't mean there isn't some sense of order. That there will be leaders under the throne of Jesus. There will be people with more authority and more power. There will be equality, yes, but there will be order. We know this in our own homes. Is your life worth more than that of your child's? No, right? You're both human beings made in the image of God. There's equality there. But there's also order, right? You're the leader. And it's a good thing you are. Or else your three-year-old would be eating licorice and pizza for every meal, and they'd be diabetic and 300 pounds at eight. 
right? There's a good thing there's order. Now there is equality 100%. The worth and the value of your life and your child's life, yes, you are equally made in the image of God with dignity and with integrity, but there's still order. And it's the same thing when it comes to Christian leadership. There are those who will be at that place. There is glory. There is a way up. But notice what Jesus says to James and John. Yeah, that position will be there. It's a good thing. But here's what you guys need to focus on. What does Jesus ask them? Hey, are you going to be able to drink the cup that I'm drinking? Are you going to be able to be baptized with the same baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? What is Jesus doing there? Jesus is using very vivid Old Testament language here. When he speaks of a a cup, that was often used, language used to describe drinking kind of the, the wrath of God or experiencing the wrath of God, suffering under his hand. Jesus uses this same exact language right before he dies in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays and he says, may this cup pass from me. What he's talking about, Father, if there's any way, if the suffering of the cross, the just, your just wrath on sin, if that could be removed from me, then let it be. But not my will, yours be done. Jesus uses that same language here. Then this language of baptism, which is just the word immersion, we should just translate it like that, but we've, we, we haven't done that. I don't know why, but immersion means to just dunk under the water. So he's saying baptism of suffering because in the Old Testament, it was often used this language of immersion to describe somebody just engulfed in suffering, like surrounded by it. It's behind them, beside them, in front of them, over them, everywhere. So Jesus is saying to James and John, can you do this? Can you experience, be engulfed? in suffering like I am. Why does he do that? Again, he's not saying that glory is bad. These positions out here are bad. What he's saying is glory is in the background. What's in the foreground is your suffering. What's right up front is your suffering. James and John, here's what you need to focus on. Not what happens in the end, but what's going to happen right now. And they say, yeah, we can do that. We can drink that cup. We can take on that baptism. And here's the eerie thing is Jesus says, yeah, you will. And they do. And it's recorded in the New Testament. 14 years after this conversation, 14 years in Acts chapter 12, James dies. He's martyred for his faith. 14 years after Mark 10, he drinks the cup of suffering. He's immersed, he's baptized into suffering. Revelation chapter 1 records John being exiled to the island of Patmos under the, uh, uh, the Roman leader Domitian's persecution of Christians. They both suffer. It's right there in front of them. But notice what Jesus has done. They ask for glory. They ask for kind of those positions of authority. Jesus, you're going to come. They have a very high view of Jesus and probably too high of a view of themselves. But even in their vanity, their view of Jesus is good. And they say, Jesus, we want that glory. And Jesus says, here's what you need to see. You need to see suffering. But notice Jesus didn't directly rebuke them. What did he do? He redirected them. You need to see, guys, the way up is down. It's humbly giving your life. That leadership is sacrifice. Achievement is servitude. James, John, the way up is down. Now, these ambitious brothers are not alone. The other disciples have this same kind of idea. And we see this. There's kind of a pattern of this. If you're reading the scriptures with us, you've seen this. There's been this pattern where Jesus will talk about the cross. He'll talk about suffering. He'll talk about dying. And then the thing that happens right after that is the disciples debate about which one of them is better. 
Like, how weird is that? Like, Jesus, your leader is talking about suffering and dying. You're like, that's good, Jesus. Okay, but James and John, who do you think will win in a spiritual arm wrestling contest? Like, wh- how did that dynamic change? We go from cross to, like, spiritual arm wrestling. What is going on here? So Jesus is going to see that these brothers, they're not alone in their unhealthy ambition for glory. So Jesus decides, well, if I'm going to teach them, I might as well teach all of them. Right? Look at this. Look at how Jesus sees this in the other disciples. Verse 41. When the ten other disciples heard that James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now, I know you're supposed to assume the best of people's motives, right? This is not one of those occasions, okay? Assume the worst in this moment. I don't think the other disciples are like, wow, that's an inappropriate question to ask. You guys are seeking vain glory. I don't think that. I think they're mad because they got beat to the punch. Like they, they asked second, they're like, oh, we missed it. Like in their mind, Jesus only had like a limited amount of power and authority to give out. And so since James and John, they asked first, they get the lion's share and they're left with the scraps, Right? They get the right hand and the left hand, and they're over here like maybe washing feet. Well, that's not fun. So now the disciples are like, oh, man, we missed out. Jesus sees this in the heart of his followers, and he says, guys, let me show you. The way up is down. You should want to go up to, to, to lead, to do great things, to have impact, to exercise authority and power, but you got to do it in the service of others. you got to be humble. Look at how Jesus describes this to his followers. It says, when the 10 other disciples heard that what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them all together. All right, let's get everybody together. Huddle up, guys. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and their officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to say, hey, you've got some leaders that you look at worldly leaders or Gentile leaders, non-Jewish leaders, or you've got these leaders out here that you look at, and they're doing it wrong. Notice what Jesus is doing, though. He's not telling them that leadership is bad. He's saying how these guys exercise leadership is bad. And he uses two, two times, uses the same preposition, over. They lord it over. It's like they have the exact opposite motto as our big idea. Our big idea is the way up is down. For them, the way up is over. How do I get success? How do I get power? I go over you. And when I have authority and power, what do I do? I lord it over you, right? I mean, we've been just a barrage of this in like this political cycle, right? Every campaign thing is like, this person's terrible. They're a liar. They're the son of Satan. Vote for me. Right? All of it. Just think about this for a moment. Imagine if you applied that same kind of reasoning to like courting your wife or, or dating your husband, right? Can you imagine like, you know, a guy is trying to impress a girl. He goes up and says, well, these three guys are terrible. He's a liar. He's an adulterer. This guy's terrible. So since these ones aren't bad, I'm your best of the worst options, so marry me. <laughs> That's not romantic, right? If we took the same type of philosophy, but this is what he's saying of these people. They just lord it over. They're self-centered and they're self-serving. They're not about you. So the only way they can sell themselves is to say, well, at least I'm better than that guy. And that guy's bad, 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 bad. And so I'm your default. How winsome is that not, right? That is so off. Jesus says, that's not how you're supposed to do it. 
It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different with you guys. I don't want you to exercise authority that way. He doesn't say authority is bad. He says, don't use it like that. And then Jesus is going to use four nouns to say, this is how I want to paint a picture of how I think leadership should be. This is how you should exercise authority and power. Look at the four nouns Jesus uses to describe how his disciples should lead. Verse 43, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader, there's noun number one, among you must be a servant, there's number two. Whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of everyone else. Leader, servant, first, slave. Jesus says, this is how I want your leadership to look like. As a leader, you serve. If you're first, you're actually a slave. What are you talking about there? Well, just notice the words, the, the first one and the third one. Leader and first. What is Jesus saying there? There's going to be leaders. And there's going to be some who are in a sense first. He's saying there's going to be order to this thing. Again, he's not demolishing like an authority structure that everything is just kind of flat. No, we are all equally, equally dignified by the design of being after our creator. We have dignity, but there's also order. And Jesus is saying there are going to be leaders and there are going to be people who are first. Then he uses those two other terms, servant and slave. And I think what Jesus does is he kind of takes one step and then a deeper step. See, a servant back then, most likely described, at least in first century Palestine, it was a word used to describe a table waiter. So somebody would come and take the order for the table and then make sure you got that food. So what's that person's job? Their entire job is to serve the needs of others. Then Jesus, Jesus presses it further and says, not just a table waiter, but now a slave. A slave was somebody owned by somebody else and their entire life, not just their job. Their entire life was to serve the needs of somebody else. What does Jesus want for his disciples? Guys, lead. Go do great things. But do it in the name of others. Do it for others. Leadership is sacrifice. Achievement is service. What an upside-down view of leadership. Right? We call people in political offices, ironically, public servants. Hmm. Slightly skeptical if that term accurately describes those in political power. I'm sure there's some that do, right? But this is what Jesus says our servant, our, our leadership structure should be. We should seek to serve. The more authority and power we have, the more we should seek the needs of others. And here's what Jesus does. He gives the kind of culminating, climaxing illustration. He says, look at me. Not just these nouns that I've used. Leader, servant, first, slave, let me show you me. Okay, look at the last verse kind of in our passage. I'll read the first, last two verses. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. This verse right here must have given the disciples like theological whiplash. 
right? Think of this term, what this invokes in the mind of the disciples. Son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, going all the way back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. Son of man, that's the one who gets into the presence of God, and God gives him authority and power and dominion and gives him the rule of everyone, not just a city-state. The entire globe is underneath his authority, and it's a kingdom that lasts for ever. you got to think, these guys are charged up. The disciples, as they're headed toward Jerusalem, like, Jesus, you're the Son of Man? Let's go. Saddle up, right? It's go time. Let's get the war paint. We'll shake our spear. We'll go get the enemy. And then what does Jesus say? I came to die. Wait, (laughs) pump the brakes, Jesus. That's not what I expected. Where's the dominion? Where's the power? Where's the authority? And Jesus talks about giving his life as a ransom. That term was used in the ancient world to describe the the payment that was made to free a prisoner or a slave. Jesus is fighting a battle. It's not the one we think he should be fighting. He's fighting a spiritual battle where we are prisoners That our greatest identity is not the flag over our head, it's the sin in our heart. Our greatest identity is that we are under the wrath of God justly because of the sinful lives we live. That sin is so insidious, it's infected every single part of our person. That everything we do is sin. And so our threat isn't some country coming in, it's the sin within. And we need to be freed from that. We need somebody to come in and give spiritual dominion and liberty to our souls or else we'll die in separation from God, exiled from our Creator forever. And Jesus says, that's the battle I'm fighting. I'm going to bring dominion spiritually to the world and say, come, live under the King and be liberated from sin and death. That's what Jesus brings in. The Son of Man came to serve and to not be served. Jesus says, you want to lead? This is how you lead. The way up is down. Paul, when he's talking about Jesus' ministry and the life of Jesus while he was here on the earth, uses the same kind of language. The way up is down. Look at this in Philippians chapter 2. This describes the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it should be the example we mimic in our lives as we pursue authority and power and greatness and the achievement of goals and the exercise of leadership. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, he humbled himself, talking about Jesus, he went down. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. His way up was what? Down. Was down. And that is our posture as well. Now, here's what you don't want to do. We gotta, I got to say this because I don't want us to take this idea in a way that's not healthy. Yes, we need to be called servant leaders, people who serve the needs of others, but you don't want to read it like this. You don't want to think, okay, so are you telling me my whole job is now that I have like 500 bosses, right? Like, okay, I'm a leader, but I got to do everything the people underneath me want to do. I got to fulfill all of their wishes. No, that's not Christian leadership. Let me show you this. In an interaction that Jesus had with Peter in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking about his great gift of leadership, which is his death on the cross for the world. And Peter says, I don't like this idea. Right? Look at this. This is Mark chapter 8, verse 31. 
Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, there's that term again, Jesus' favorite term, a Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and to be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he'd be raised from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with the disciples, now here's one of the weirdest verses in the entire Bible. I do not know how this played out. What an awkward moment. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. What? Like this guy is casting out demons. He's healing people. You're going to correct him? The audacity of Peter. What in the world? Peter took him aside, began to reprimand him for saying such things. Hey, this whole dying thing, I'm not down with. I'm cool with dominion, power, and authority, coming on clouds with a bunch of angels. That sounds cool. Sign me up. This whole thing of dying and suffering. (laughs) Let's redo the plan here. Let's reboot this system. Verse 33, Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus' servant leadership there was determined not to fulfill Peter's wishes, but to work for his greatest welfare. See, that's the difference of Christian leadership. Christian leadership doesn't say, I'm going to do what you want, but rather I'm going to do the things that you need. It's not about me fulfilling your wishes. It's rather me working for your greatest welfare. That's what I'll do. I'll pursue my way up in pleasing God and honoring God is to come down and to humbly serve that your best needs are met. Not that you're going to get everything you want, but you will get what you so desperately need. That's Christian leadership. Humbly serving the needs of others. Not serving so, or not leading so others will serve us, but rather leading so we can serve others. That's the kind of leadership. That's the kind of greatness that God smiles over. Now, sadly, and I think this is true, we are in a Christian leadership crisis. Now, I know you hear that term like, Paul, I've heard that. Dude, this is all I'm getting right before, you know, the midterms in November. Like, this is the greatest, the most important election ever. Okay, that's what you said last election. And what are you going to say next election? No, this is the one. America's at a tipping point. Everything is going to go crazy. Dragons are going to come and shoot fire. And your babies are going to turn into gremlins. Like, what? Right? All this like apocalyptic language is used to like scare us into the ballot, you know, boxes or whatever, like into those little cubicles. So we vote. Like, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to do that. But I honestly think it is a fair assessment to use that word crisis. We are on a Christian leadership crisis, especially in the American church, like big time. And it's sad. It is sad and it is scary. I can't tell you the countless amount of leaders, organizations, and pastors who've fallen into sin. I mean, literally, like, just in the last three years, it's been remarkable that you just, like, one right after the other. And it's crazy, like, guys my age doing ministry, how we'll, like, text each other. And honestly, it feels like at a moment, like, a lot of my texts with pastors my age that I went to school with, grad school, and different things with, that were just like, man, there's another one. And it's like, that's what you anticipate to come. And you're not going to believe this is another one. Now it's this whole entire organization. And you're just like, man, is anybody going to make it? Like, is any Christian leader going to make it? Here's what I think has happened. I think what's happened is as we bought into kind of this celebrity pastor mindset, it's because what we're doing is we are elevating the gifts of the Spirit and we're not considering the fruits of the Spirit. 
So here's what I mean by like elevating the gifts of the Spirit. So like say the gifts of the Spirit would be like skills that God gives you, the Holy Spirit gives you to serve Him. Could be the, the, the skill of like leadership or teaching. So we see this dynamic teacher, we see this dynamic leader, and we think, great, let's elevate, right? Let's elevate His platform. Let's make Him a celebrity. And we don't think about the fruits of the Spirit, which is like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What about those? And so His spiritual gifting outpaces His character. And the most dangerous thing is a good leader with bad character. And now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to, I, what I don't want to do is I, want us, I don't want to feed into this mentality that we should be skeptical of Christian leadership. That's not what I'm saying. I think we, collectively, as American Christians, need to ask ourselves, why is this happening? What, what environment are we fostering that's creating this celebrity of pastors that's now putting people who are outpacing their character why do we form those things? And I think it is because we don't foster relationships of great spiritual proximity where there's vulnerability and accountability. Because, you know, one of the things that I dislike the most about being a pastor of a larger church is this. It's the distance. And I'm not saying because I want your chairs right here. That would be weird. I spit a lot when I talk. You don't want that. I don't want that. That's like the splash zone. So that's just for your safety, okay? <laughs> no, but it's the distance, right? Because you can see my competency. Can he talk? Does he teach well? Are his jokes funny? Right? The third one I'm not super good at. But you laughed at it. So maybe I am. See that trick? Irony. <laughs> But right, there's a distance. Like you can judge my competency every week, but you can't see my character because there's that distance. And we come sometimes to larger churches and we sit and we, we enjoy and we think it's great, but there's a distance we can have, right? We can come and we can attend, but we get lost in the crowd and there's a spiritual distance. So we're a part of something, but not really a part of something. And just like we can build this celebrity following where we can know, man, I know a ton of stuff of facts about different celebrities and different people. I know what Kim ate for lunch. Kardashian, that's what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Celery and a whatever, carrot, right? But you know all these things in details, but Kim don't know you. You don't know Kim. You're not in her life, but you know a ton about her. You know her diet. You know everything. But we do that. We've created these Christian communities that foster that. It, I mean, we should just say to ourselves, okay, every time one of these guys falls, right? Every time one of these things goes down, okay, why are we creating a climate that keeps producing these celebrity leaders who then fall? Maybe some of that is on us. Are we fostering communities of confession and accountability? When we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ, are our meetings defined of like, well, look, we're going to have different e people impress each other with their spiritual knowledge? Or we're going to get in and we're going to have this in-depth critique of the immorality of the world? Think about the Christian conversations you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are those conversations to impress them with your spirituality? And then to speak about the uh, critique of the world's immoralities? Or do you come in and say, man, you know what's in here? Pride's in here. See, because Jesus got to stop his disciples and say, hold on, James, John, that's a good thing in the wrong way. Let's talk about this. The way up, man, is down. In fact, all of you guys, the rest of you 10, there's something dangerous you're wanting here. I need, to, I need to show you how this is wrong. Do you have anybody in your life that you share that kind of spiritual proximity with? 
Are you close enough to somebody where you can say, man, I see pride in your heart, brother. Watch out. If you don't have that, then this is what we're going to keep getting the same results we're getting. We're going to keep getting celebrity pastors who fall. That's what we're going to get because we don't have true spiritual proximity to each other where we can see what's going on in each other's heart. Do you have anybody like that? who can have a conversation like Jesus had with James and John and the other disciples to find the sin in your heart. If you don't have that friend, you may be wanting right things in the wrong way and that's going to ruin you because it's ruining us. It's ruining our witness. It is a mark against the American church. And we've got to stop it. And we've got to stop it by getting closer to each other, fostering those things, accountability, and confession. I'll tell you one of the things I'm most excited about in 2023 is that what God is doing amongst our staff, I'm really excited about that journey. You heard about it, but I'm really excited that God is increasing the desire for accountability amongst our staff. I mean, it is really sweet. It is really beautiful how we want to make sure, guys, we got to keep track of our character and not just our competence. Because what will hurt us is not that we can't do the job, it's that we're not fit to do the job anymore because we fell. I hope you have somebody in your life. And if you don't, search that out, man. Search that out. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Christ, we thank you for the wonderful example of leadership that you give to us, that the way up is down. It's humble service for the needs of others. Oh, Christ, I pray that we would honor your leadership model. And we want to adopt this idea that the way up is over. Let's get over people. Let's lord our leadership over people. Let's get as many people in the room that can serve us. That's not what this is about. We want to model your example, Christ, that you gave your life as a ransom for many. You sacrificed yourself. Father, I pray that the world would see that kind of leadership from us. They would see that kind of achievement from us, that that sense of, of gaining influence for the sake of others. I pray, Father, they would find that in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work in our hearts right now. As we have a time where we reflect and we're about to enter in communion and we're about to sing, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to just find that person in our heart that could be close to us where they can say, hey, brother, you stepped in a wrong direction. Father, bind our hearts together. Holy Spirit, knit us together because we all want to make it to the end. We all want to finish this race well. And we don't want to tarnish the gospel because we've fallen into sin because nobody was in our life keeping an eye on us, holding us accountable. Holy Spirit, pick out those names. Drop those into our minds. And maybe this time we, we initiate that conversation this week and say, hey, friend, will you hold me accountable? I need it. I need it. Because we can want great things in bad ways, and that leads to our ruin. Holy Spirit, make that clear to us at this time. To Christ's name I pray. Amen.